Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Forrest Gump plans the great escape through historical fiction. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and these are my magic shows. And I am Thomas Mariani, and I am tunneling to get away from this park bench where Adam is talking so much about his goddamn life story. I gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Whoa, boyo, let me make a tunnel. Get us out of here. Oh, Charlie, please help me. <laughs> You're the only one that can help me. Uh, well, everybody, welcome to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, uh, where every week, if you're new, uh, we talk about, uh, you know, a double feature that we picked at the end of the previous episode uh, based around a topic that's kind of, you know, usually at least related to something recent that's uh, coming out in the film world. And uh, we, you know, stumbled upon this topic because we had our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod vote in a poll for this one. And uh, they ended up uh, choosing historical fiction, uh, which relates to a couple releases that are recent. Uh, Babylon, which recently uh, opened up a bit larger, and also uh, Pale Blue Eye, which is in theaters right now in certain places, but it'll be on Netflix in a couple weeks. Um, and basically, historical fiction is uh, from this is per the definition at least I found for it is stories related to real past events and or people that are overall fictitious which I'll just state right now one of our choices I think might not technically fit that definition <laughs> no no but I mean there are real things that happen in it so I mean it skirts a line but I think it I hey we'll give it a pass yeah, but I think at least the for many things we'll say about the bad pick, uh, that one technically fits historical fiction more, which is to say, like, basically, in a story where it's like, oh, there is, it takes place in a past time frame, and it follows a character who isn't real, but they might stumble upon, like, real events, or they might stumble upon real people in history, which I think is interesting as, like, a fun, like, idea for especially, you know, even though in a modern world sort of like that line of like what is fiction what is reality kind of thing as that continues forward uh at the same time i think it's fun to like kind of have these stories where it's like let's play with history a bit where we have a character kind of like stumbling along i think that can work in the right context yeah yeah i suppose that's true sometimes they really work for me but you know when they're bad and especially the ones that sort of go along with what you're talking about like I can think of a couple. I think you're going to name one of them later, potentially. Uh, but when they're bad, they're so bad. Like, Pride and Prejudice zombies and things like that. You're like, oh, God, this is just awful shit. Right. I mean, the genre ones kind of are dicey. But for every one of those, there's also some, like, Ababa Hotep, which I think is a great example of that. Yeah. Where it's like, it, it takes the basic idea of, like, oh, this thing in history where it's like, oh, this famous figure died. But it's like, but what if... There's this alternate path where what history actually is is kind of like skewed a bit. Nothing else like that sort of alternate history and like future stuff I actually really like. That kind of like, oh, speculative fiction of like what could happen in the universe where like this slight thing changed. Yeah. 
Sure. Whatever, man. I don't know. Look, it's the end of the year. Adam was very tired. I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) There's no question. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, why don't we go ahead and jump in then with uh, the two picks we picked at the end of our last episode, uh, which, by the way, you weren't here for Adam, so welcome back. Uh, Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, but um, we're. <laughs> I didn't mean to sound as negative about that as I did. <laughs> You're exhausted. I get it. It's fine. We got to yeah. start talking about these movies here, Adam. But uh, we picked at the end of the last episode uh, the good pick, which was one of your choices, The Great Escape, which we'll talk about first. And then my bad pick that might be a hot take for some people, but we'll get into it uh, about Forrest oh Gump. But first, let's start off with The Great Escape. Five hundred prisoners of war in a maximum security camp. Give up your hopeless attempts to escape. We're going to devote our energies to sports and gardening, all the cultural pursuits. Meanwhile, we dig. The Germans put all their rotten eggs in one barbed wire basket, and they hatched the most ingenious escape plan in the history of war. Cedric, manufacturer. Griffith, I said, Taylor. Nimon Haynes, diversions. Which one's a forgery? Uh... Both Hold on to yourself, Bartlett. You're 20 feet short. The hole is right here in the open. The guard is between us and the lights. The Great Escape. From a barbed wire camp to a barbed wire country. No tools, no clothes, no credentials, no way out. Yet, they made the Great Escape. So The Great Escape came out uh, July 4th, 1963, uh, from director John Sturgis, which is based on the nonfiction book by uh, Paul Brickhill, who was apparently part of this actual true story, uh, in which, if you're unaware, this uh, takes place during World War II and is about uh, a bunch of prisoners in a prisoner of war camp uh, called uh, Stalag Luft III, uh, which is in Germany, where basically uh, 76 men end up escaping uh, from this camp, uh, and spoilers for real events, uh, 50 of them were killed, 23 were taken back to the camp, and three end up managing to escape. So a lot of that uh, sort of like the through line of the story, including like how they built like various tunnels to try and escape and all that stuff, that's all very true. Like all of like the sort of outline of the story is very true, but there are a lot of fictions within the margins, particularly that um, there are three major American characters in this movie, as opposed to there was only one American at this camp. It was mostly, like, British and um, Australian prisoners. Yeah. And none of them were as cool as James Coburn or Bronson. But no, that's the, you know, the thing about this movie is the cast is kind of insane. Like, it's kind of one of the greatest, like, of-the-era ensemble casts, like, ever. You know, not only do you got McQueen and Coburn and Bronson, but then you got, you know, Richard Attenborough, you got Pleasance, you got, I mean, it's just nonstop, man. It's fucking crazy. And this is also one of those movies that has permeated sort of the pop culture zeitgeist so much to where if you've never seen the movie, you've probably heard the theme or seen a popular television show like The Simpsons or something like that do a take on it with the theme. It's, it's happened so many times. Right, to the point where I had not seen this movie before uh, we did it for the show here, um, but at the same time I recognized, like, obviously the Elmer Bernstein theme, as you mentioned, is, like, very iconic, has been uh-huh. uh, put everywhere, but even, like, in The Simpsons there's that great episode where it's um, Maggie escaping the daycare center, 
that like uh-huh. parodies certain bits of this movie like shot for shot like it's particularly like the ball bouncing against the wall and stuff like that which even outside of the simpsons i'd seen that parodied so many other times like even chicken run chicken run is basically like a parody of this fucking movie yeah <laughs> where i'm like oh of course sweet this makes so much more sense than the movie i saw when i was a child uh but yeah so adam though this was your pick and so uh-huh. is this one that you grew up with was this one that you really loved and does it still hold up for you uh yeah i grew i definitely grew up with it it was definitely one of those ones that like my dad loved and anytime it would be on because it was on a lot it's it probably i don't you know i don't have cable anymore but this was like a turn classic movie thing all the time and uh so i've seen it quite a few times i remember more getting enjoyment out of it because my dad liked it so much and let my dad like explain to me who steve mcqueen was and you know coburn and all these guys and you know what they've done before and just sort of the the legend of Steve McQueen, especially as, you know, the ultra man's man and all that stuff. So it was kind of a fun bonding experience with that. Uh, but then as I got older and watched it, probably like, I don't know, early high school days to really sit there and watch it and sort of try to take it in, I think it was even for drama class. And uh, yeah, I, I really, really liked it. I, I was kind of blown away by it, um, especially because, and I know it sounds silly, but Richard Attenborough looking the way he does in this movie, like that is so it just it's bizarre to me because it doesn't look like either like he was young. No, I I really liked it then. Uh, obviously, like I said, the Steve McQueen stuff, but the motorcycle stunt alone is still impressive. Um, but after going back, you know, and, and to be fully transparent, I wasn't able to completely rewatch it this time. Just uh, flu, work, Christmas stuff, all that stuff. It kind of prevented me from getting getting it done. I can't believe you couldn't fit a three-hour movie into that schedule, Adam. I mean, two of them. Two of them. One of them's like two twenty. This one is like three hours long. Well, the the two twenty one feels like five twenty, um, <laughs> but it uh, it just it from what I was able to recatch it, it. A, I was really happy and excited by it, but it makes me like as soon as I get the free time, like potentially even Christmas Day. When everything's done, I might um, I might finish it then because I really really enjoyed it and it gave me a nice sense of nostalgia and also just sort of a appreciation for you know how movies were made back then. That's the one thing you can say about this: movies don't get made like this anymore in this style and just this huge cast where it doesn't feel like a big Hollywood thing. Like this doesn't feel like a big like cash grab Hollywood movie. It feels like they made the movie they wanted to tell, not because not. Oh, you're gonna see it. Cause look who's in it. Oh yeah, it's their big comeback movie or some bullshit like that. It's just a genuinely fun and exciting movie. And it's weird too that a movie like this about what it's about that they gave it that sort of little bit of a comedic tone to some of it, and it, it really works. It doesn't feel off to me. Whereas sometimes, you know, that can really go against the movie. But uh, I'd argue that it really works in favor on this one. Yeah, there's enough like levity and stuff. It feels like like. Once again, my first impression of it, this being the first time I ever just watched the whole movie and didn't, say, watch Leonardo DiCaprio get deep faked into it in, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whatever. Um, seeing the whole movie, it is truly, like, a great crowd pleaser that still really works even from, like, a modern perspective. I think it's because, like, they have that levity that you mentioned in, in there, and I think it's because, despite how, like, in theory, like, big, like, the great escape and how, like, massive in theory this could be, it's a very intimate story about, like, a group of men who are stuck in this place against their will and trying to like even leave not because they like have any hope of like actually getting out like i watched a little documentary uh that included some of the actual 
uh, escapees or like prisoners uh, that were involved in this, the based on a true story element of this. Um, and they talked about the fact that like so much of this wasn't even based on like, oh, we're going to get out of this as much as like we wanted to cause this chaos. Like Attenborough even talks about that at one point in this movie about like we are mainly here to kind of have some kind of disruption that can help even a little bit with our guys actually fighting in World War II at this time. So it's not even like, oh, we're actually going to escape and be free. It's just like, we need to cause chaos because fuck these guys. It's really, it's, it's a movie about like patriotic trolling, basically. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, you got to figure too, because when you really think about it, like say these guys do get out, right? And obviously it really happened in real life, but even in the context, like just to think like, we're all going to escape. We're all going to get away. We're all going to be fine. I mean, the chances of that happening are slim to none. So, really, yeah, fuck them. Just make them uncomfortable. Disrupt the disrupt down with the system. Anarchy, anarchy. <laughs> uh, you know, hack the planet. Oh God. But um, no, it's just because uh, what else you got? You know, and that's kind of the sense you get. What else you got? You're stuck in this place, like you said, in a prison, a war prison. So fuck it, <laughs> fuck it. Ruin their day. Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think like what what really helps is also the fact that all of it also feels kind of like low stakes for like that element of it, but even like with the guy who's running the prison, the German officer, he's trying to make this kind of like a oh I know this is bullshit. Like I'm not a big fan of like what the Nazis are necessarily doing at this time anyway. So how about we all just stay chill and we'll garden and we'll treat you decently and all that, and this can all be like calm and peaceful, but. Just the rage that builds up. We're just like, no, we're not going to make this easy for you, dude. <laughs> Fuck you. We're prisoners here. This isn't a fucking vacation. This is me being imprisoned in this dumb camp. This, we're not going to be on like friendly terms with this. I mean, right. Of course. I agree with you. I, that is one of my favorite movies. movie. It's like, oh, I know. Look, sorry. Sorry to be the bearer of the bad news type of asshole that everybody has at work. Yeah, you know, like, so, look, this is like the guys up top. This isn't me. I'm like we're buddies, yeah. right? Like I'm the assistant to the regional manager, not yeah. The main I'm just guy. doing my job here too, buddy. <laughs> I was only following orders, perhaps is what they might say. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Perhaps that would be said. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. Absolutely, you know, just obviously in the setting of what it is. But of course, yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck you, man. I'm about to piss in your cereal. Like, you know, not literally. Well, maybe literally. I don't know. It'd just be a horrible situation to be in. I mean, that's a real disruptor move to do that. It is really disruptive. I agree. It is a disrupt <laughs> disruptor move. Yeah, I see what you did. Yeah, I don't know. It, you know, but how do you feel about sort of the main leads in this? How do you feel like Steve McQueen does? Um, well, yeah, it's interesting because like McQueen is somebody who I just mostly know as like a Hollywood figure. Like the only McQueen right. movies I've seen besides this one are Magnificent Seven, um, which was also directed by Sturgis, uh, The Blob, and The Towering Inferno. So like, that's Ooh. all of my basis for who McQueen is basically in terms of well, actually seeing the movies. You gotta watch Bullet. That's been on the watch list along with The Great Escape, so one down, <laughs> another hey. one to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, with him, it's so fascinating because, like, he has this great, like, obviously when I've seen clips of this movie and him in particular, like the motorcycle stuff and all that, he's one of those guys where it's like, oh my god, he's like the ultimate badass, he's so cool, he's so slick, and he is those things, but I love how in context of the movie, he's like kind of like the lone fuck-up dude who's off to the side, like, yeah, you all are planning, like, some big thing with the tunnels, whatever the fuck, I don't care, I'm doing my own thing, I'm a rebel, <laughs> I'm not playing by your rules. He's kind of a dummy. Right. And it really works for him. I, I agree. That's why 
I, hey, I love Steve McQueen. You know, he's Steve McQueen. But uh, yeah, I, that's the part about his character in this I really love too, where it's simply because of sort of his brawn and I guess he would, or his daredevil esque attitude that he gets through. Because if not, he's just a, he's kind of a fuck up. Right, but what I like also at the same time, it's kind of like he's the missing ingredient for like what everybody's doing over there, and vice versa. Where like Attenborough like tries to get him to help out, and he's like, "No, I'm going to do my own thing. That's cool." And McQueen fucks up by trying to do that, and at the same time, they also fuck up without McQueen. So I love the added element. It's like, well, why don't we just collaborate together? It's like we built the tunnel. You go through it and help us get out of here. And it's like, I, I like that, that it's kind of like a, a weird impasse thing where it's like, well, if everyone is going to get out of here, if we can get the originally planned 250 men out of here, we need you to help us out. And uh, they, I, I like that, especially by the time it gets to like the actual escape and McQueen's like the first one to like pop his head out like a gopher and then helps every, like the few people that are able to get out, out. Um, it, it works for just like, oh, there's actually a sense of like camaraderie that kind of happens there. Not we're going to be best friends forever, but like we are people in desperate need of each other. So let's get us out of the situation as quickly as possible. Right. And you know, again, I know I said at the very top of the discussion, but this fucking cast like, everybody in it works very, very well. That's the thing. is like, McQueen is great, but he's not my favorite. My favorites in this movie are Garner and Pleasance. I love oh, that Pleasance relationship. fucking great. Yeah, they're but, great. Yeah, those two are great together. I, but, but even, like, Garner I just love is, like, he's the guy who basically is like, oh, I'm the scrounger. And he has, like, which was actually a true thing where they actually had people who were, like, scrounge about, like, oh, hey, Germans, you want to, like, uh, maybe get a bit of coffee, some chocolate? You like all that, right? It's like, ooh, this is good night. And then he was able to, like, give him that, basically. <laughs> they come from the land of chocolate, of course. That's why. But his whole thing where it's just, like, he's the guy who's, like, instantaneously, like, trying to help anybody out. He's, like, very courteous, very respectful to everybody. And then he just sees Pleasance as, like, a poor, wounded animal. Literally, like, blinded. Uh, like, in a tragic sense. And, like, him trying to help him out throughout that whole thing, like, that last third of the movie is, like, so emotionally, like, really palpable, where it's just, like, oh, it's just endearing, like, he wants to help this dude out who's, like, at a pathetic state. And it really works, especially all the stuff when, like, it's him, Attenborough, and Pleasance, and, like, Pleasance is trying to hide the fact that he's been blind, and he's like, oh, look, I'll get that pin over there, right? That's what you want. He's been practicing it this whole time, and it's like, well, come back over this way, and the foot comes out, it's like, oh, no. It ain't gonna fucking work out for Pleasance. This, it's, it's so tragic. I love all that stuff. Yeah. I agree. I think you'd already know who my favorite is in it without even really having to say it just because it's who it is. Hmm, I wonder. Is it maybe someone who we would usually see as a very stoic, emotionless robot, but here actually has like an emotional journey that I was shocked to believe in? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? <laughs> Come on. I don't know. I just wish I could name it. Yeah, you're right. No, he's fucking great at it, man. It's probably his best. I mean, honestly, I love Charles Bronson in pretty much anything, but this is probably, at least from what I've seen, some of his best work, for sure. Um, he's not just the the mechanic or, you know, the guy from Death Wish. He's, he's, he does have a real arc to him, and it, you really kind of, like, get behind his character, and you he's super important to the plot. So, I mean, yeah, just probably Charles Bronson's best work. Yeah, and shout out to, I forgot who the guy is who's like his buddy throughout the whole movie actually helps out with the claustrophobia and stuff like that. But their friendship is also really endearing, especially like the whole scene where he's going to try and like, I, I can't go in the tunnel anymore, so I'm going to like try and go over the fence. And there's that whole scene where it's like he, the guy's trying to get Bronson back. And he's like, no, come back. What are you doing? 
We can't do that. What are you doing, you fucking idiot? You gotta come back here. Like, that whole scene is so well choreographed. And then, like I said, the scenes where Bronson's talking, like, actually going through the claustrophobia, it genuinely feels, like, emotional in a weird way where I'm just like, I, I just don't expect it from that dude being so stone-faced all the time. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, it's a very tremendous performance, I would agree. If Though I would say my favorite Bronson is a bit later in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. I think that's just, like, the perfect Yeah, that's, that's in, in pretty perfect Bronson. It's yeah, fucking dope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the way, shout out, uh, the guy I'm referring to is uh, John Leeton as Willie. Uh, ah. He's, like, Bronson's uh, cohort and ends up escaping. One of the few actual escapees of The Great Escape. Um, though you mentioned earlier, of course, Coburn with that terrible Australian accent. Like, such a bad Australian I, uh, fucking yeah. accent. But yeah. he's fucking cool. So I don't care how bad well, it yeah, is. James Colburn. Yeah. James, James Colburn is a fucking, he's just awesome. But yeah, that accent is egregious. Like, what are they thinking? <laughs> to the point where I'm just like, wait, so was he actually one of like the South African guys in the real story? Or was he like British? Or is he Australian? Like, it, it morphs between all those three. But at the same time, the whole time he's in that camp, you're instantaneously just like, oh no, he's like one of the cooler guys here, particularly when like he's leaving. And he's like, why you got that big ass suitcase? You're not going to get that out there. Just like, I'll take my chances. <laughs> and he leaves with the suitcase. And I love that even too, that like the actual titular escape happens about like two thirds of the way through this movie. So the last third is just that whole, like, slow realization of, like, most of these guys are going to either get murdered or get back to the camp. And I just, I love, like, all that the tension that's there with, like, Richard Narenborough and his buddy when they're, like, trying to get on the bus and stuff like that. Just, like, let's play it cool, let's play it calm. And how it works so many times, there's, like, so many close calls, and it's like, woof, everything's good, everything's good. And then he gets fucked over by the thing he tried to warn another guy about. We're just like, oh, no, don't respond to English. That catches everybody all the time. And then he does it at the end, like, oh, no! They set it up and he got fucked by that same thing he was warning people against. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about this movie, too. Clocking in at three hours or whatever, two hours, 52 minutes or, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't feel like it, though. Like, no, it's not. I mean, brisk. it's long, but it is does feel pretty brisk, which says a lot. You know, that, that says a lot for storytelling in general or you know screenplay and, and sort of the way the film's done and acted and everything like that to where you can have that much content and especially like compared to nowadays like we're used to to that and it even feels shorter than you know modern movies that are clocking in at damn near three hours i can imagine it felt shorter than fucking avatar though at the same time i do get how like watching this like i realized why it was such like a big especially like you mentioned turner classic movies kind of staple where it's like it feels like the ideal way to watch this movie is like four hours long with about an hour of commercials sprinkled between so you can like leave get a drink go to the bathroom or whatever (laughs) that feels like kind of like the best way necessarily watch it on like a lazy sunday afternoon kind of thing it feels like perfect for that like that kind of bygone age that honestly isn't here anymore with like as you mentioned, like most people cut cable, uh, but still, even in like like you know a modern context, it still really works. You get immersed. I think it especially works because it's so clearly divided. With like the first third is planning the escape, the second third is like either trying or succeeding in the escape, and that third third is there like either people actually getting home scot free, getting strung back, or being horribly executed. Like the whole scene where you're in Edinburgh and like fifty men end up getting like shot like that and it's one of those things where you know what's going to happen even i didn't know like the whole historical context of this but the moment like the guy's like oh hey why don't you come out and stretch your legs i'm like oh no they're gonna get fucked 
Oh, this is bad. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> not Richard Amber. Not, not him. Who will have that spicy conversation with Mr. DNA now? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who will have that conversation with himself and awkwardly fumble through his cue cards? <laughs> no! No! Damn you, Nazis! And even, like, that's also the case even with, like, McQueen, where, like, I knew about that whole motorcycle chase, which is so awesome in this movie, where, like, he it's fucking has, like, great. flanked at various different sides. But even the fact that, like, he does all those, like, badass jumps and all that stuff, it's like, oh, this is so cool. And then he gets, like, caught in the barbed wire, and he's fucked. And it's like, oh, no, even he can't get away. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. All is right. lost. Yeah, I know. And, it, you know, that motorcycle jump is still considered one of the greatest stunts ever on screen and I mean it holds up dude it's still pretty fucking thrilling and impressive like it's definitely but I do think that's probably I mean with people without even knowing it for the most part have seen that I mean it's constantly whenever you watch anything like an award same road and everything they show clips from you know Hollywood's past or cinema's you know greatest moments or whatever that's usually always on there even the stock image of McQueen on that motorcycle, like in front of the barbed wire on like the hill and stuff like that, that's sort of like the stock image of him I've seen in many places. Yeah, pretty much everywhere. Yeah, for sure. If it's not that, it's the picture from the bullet poster, usually. But at the same time, like what I like also is like it doesn't feel like one of those movies where like, oh, I've seen parodies, therefore I feel like I've seen the whole movie. Because there's no, certain elements no. that like I like there were certain elements I discovered watching it for the first time that I loved. Like there's the my favorite sequence probably in the whole movie is the bit where they create the moonshine and the potatoes. And then they do, like, their little, like, 4th of July, like, uh, oh, there comes the, the colonies are coming in, and they're, like, making peace with the British folks and stuff like that. It's really charming, and then leads into that incredibly depressing, like, oh, they discovered one of the tunnels, I believe Tom. But uh, the, the whole thing with McQueen's, like, little British buddy, and he, how he gets, like, oh, I'm, like, hope is lost, so I'm gonna try and jump, and then he gets shot down horribly. Another great, like all is lost moment that just came from a really exciting, riveting, like fun bonding moment between all these guys. We're just like, Hey, we're going to come together and like drink moonshine. And it's like, Oh no, we can't even have that. To be fair, that specific bonding experience never ends well. <laughs> a bunch of dudes hanging out drinking potato moonshine together. It's not going to end well. No matter what era where you are, you're fucked. Well, especially prison potato moonshine, I'm sure, is even worse than it would be oh, God, in other yeah, circumstances. Made, it, made of the toilets. Ugh. Yeah, shout out, by the way, that's Ives is that guy who ends up getting shot. Um, who is, like, tremendous, like, especially early on when he's talking between the prison cells with the queen as he's doing, like, the baseball thing and everything. And to Angus Letty is that character. And he's, like, such the perfect, like, small, short king dude who I'm just like, oh, I want that guy to get out of here. He's so great. He's so, like a little charming pipsqueak of a man. I'm so, I hope he gets out of here. It's like, nah, he can't. It's a bummer. But like, even when we get to the ending of the movie and we have like all those guys come back, I love the fact that they kind of like bond even over the fact that it's like, well, a bunch of our men died. It was really horrible and upsetting, but at least the commandant get kicked out and like we caused a disruption like Richard Attenborough kind of wanted. So like, you know what? We did something. I kind of love that where it's like even that, that weird kind of like ennui of a like mixed bag, bittersweet ending where it's like we didn't succeed in our ultimate goal, but we did something. There was some kind of like disruption progress made. Well, yeah, it's, it's bonding and joint failure, you know? I mean, they didn't achieve exactly what they wanted, but there's still some kind of satisfaction to be had by all these guys who actually survived. 
It's a very common thing, you know, because it's like you see it all the time in movies and, or even in life, but this one does really do it well, uh, especially given the circumstance. Like, yeah, you might not have gotten gone the full distance of where you wanted to go, but, you know, your little detour uh, might have got you somewhere pretty cool, too. Uh, you know, so there's bo- some bonding in that to where it's like, yeah, we failed, but f- we still fucked these guys' days up. So fuck it. Yeah, that kind of camaraderie, just like, we stuck it to the man. The We ain't a part of their system. <laughs> We're adults. Um, but, like, in a really genuine, sincere way. This ain't um, my dad. This is a cell phone. Cell phone. <laughs> I love that part when Steve McQueen did that and he threw his baseball on the ground. <laughs> and then it bounced against the wall. <laughs> Um, but also, I just want to give a shout out to with uh, Sturgis. I just love the way this movie looks. I think particularly with like the the, the sort of uh, geography we get of the camp and like the production design and the um, all the elements, where it's just like you get a sense of just like every little detail. Especially as like the escape plans end up getting screwed over, you really get a sense of like, oh my god, are they going to get out of this kind of stuff? And like especially the bit when they discover the Tom Tunnel, and it's like, oh, the guy pours a bit on the uh, little part of the, the floor, and it's like, wait a minute, it's not seeping through. Like, what's happening? What's going on? And they discover it. It's just, like, it all works for, like, everything is perfectly, like, set up and paid off in really interesting ways. But, yeah, I mean, this guy could direct a hell out of a movie. Like you said, Great Escape, but Magnificent Seven, even. I mean, how iconic are the shots and things in that movie as well? I'd say he knew what he was doing. Bold takes. Uh, John Sturgis fans over here. Um, we stand. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're speaking at a at a, at, a, at the the Sturgis. St- we well, we thought it was a Sturgis uh, director sort of rally. It just turns out to be a bunch of dirty bikers. But uh, we're still going to go down there and talk about it. No, well, I thought everyone was going to be in the Eagle Has Landed cosplay here. I guess not. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, Magnificent Seven, get off the stage, pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, Adam, you know, uh, we have a whole other movie that I think we're going to talk about quite a bit. So let's go ahead and get into our final thoughts here on The Great Escape. I mean, like I said, it's iconic for a reason. It's one of those that has sort of uh, permeated itself in pop culture forever and in film and Hollywood and movie making, acting, all that stuff. It is genuinely bona fide a classic, not a cult classic, not you know, an undiscovered gem. This this would be considered one of those where it's a classic of Hollywood, and uh, for very good reason. I mean, and it still holds up. People still, you know, you just saw it, you really liked it. it it's so it's got staying power, and uh, I'm imagining it'll always be that. It's not one of those where it's like, oh, it has this classic status, and like I feel that oh, it's been put on sort of like a weird pedestal, and we've kind of moved beyond it necessarily. I think it's still like a rousing, fun time, and I think it still like would work for like a modern audience as like just one to like get invested in and embrace. Um, not just for like the pop culture references, but even just on its own terms, it's a really interesting movie. And even though, like we mentioned, doesn't quite fit into like the sort of historical fiction element of this. Uh, at the same time, the stuff that is fictional adds a completely different context that like still works for I guess more of the spirit of like the actual true story based on my limited knowledge admittingly based on like the documentary and a few bits of reading I did um but like Steve McQueen is an entirely fictional character like that character does not exist in the real true story or anything like that but at the same time 
like as a lot of the people in that documentary even mentioned, even the real people were just like, I don't know, but it's fucking Steve McQueen being really cool. So like, I get why they put that in here. <laughs> I get it, and it's like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it just it's a great example of like sort of classic '60s era filmmaking in particular that still you know holds up quite well to this day. I would say. But now, Adam, let's talk a bit about um, a much more recent film uh, in context uh, that uh, has still permeated for various different reasons. Uh, let's talk about. Forrest Gump. Now on DVD. Mom always said there's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes. I've worn lots of shoes. Mama said they'd take me anywhere. Of all the places Forrest Gump has been, there's one place he hasn't on DVD. Run, Forrest! Run! Now, one of the most beloved motion pictures of all time is available on DVD for the first time. The Forrest Gump Special Collector's Edition. Mine's Forrest Gump. People call me Forrest Gump. What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself. Winner of six Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Picture. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. The Forrest Gump Special Collector's Edition. Coming home for the first time on DVD. Buy it today. So, uh, Forrest Gump came out uh, July 6, 1994, uh, about 31 years almost to the day after The Great Escape, uh, from director Robert Zemeckis, uh, written by Eric Roth, based on the novel Forrest Gump by Winston Groom. And um, some of you out there might be curious as to why I would have picked this for a bad pick. Yeah, because, admittingly, this is a very popular movie. Um, it grossed $678 million, which at the time made it, like, the third highest-grossing movie of all time. Um, and now it's, like, more in, like, the top 150, but still a shit ton of money. Um, and it was nominated for, like, 13 Academy Awards, one for, like, Best Picture and Director. Tom Hanks won Best Actor, and it's the only time like, someone has won an acting award, like, twice in a row, because he had won for Philadelphia the last year previously. Um, and, you know, it's a movie that has, like, a lot of cultural stain power. My, a lot of people in my family, like, love this movie. Like, my sisters love this movie. My parents, like, introduced me to this movie. And um, I, for a while, I grew up loving Forrest Gump. That's just like, oh, this is obviously one of the great films ever made. It just kind of, like, fed into that kind of thing that we were... A lot of people who were, like, raised in, like, the 90s and the 2000s kind of, like, fed into with this movie. Um, and then around when I was in college, I started hearing a lot of the sort of backlash against it. And I was like, oh, do I want to revisit that movie? I don't know if I can now with a lot of like the, that's, I don't know if I want to like have that tarnished. And then a couple years ago, I finally rewatched it for the first time in like over at least a, you know, a decade. And, um, I had much more negative thoughts than I had previously about this. But Adam, you've mentioned to me several times off mic, uh, that you have been a hater of Forrest Gump from day one. That is correct, sir. Since it came out, uh, as I've talked about on this show several times, uh, I cannot stand movies that are just the only thing they have about them is being emotionally manipulative. I don't. I, I understand, you know, tearjerker movies and things like that, but they usually, you know, have something sort of else going with it. This to me doesn't have that. To me, this is just a whole bunch of stupid fucking filler. Mixed with moments that it's supposed to be like, but look, it's sad. People are crying. Or, oh, man, do you remember when this happened? Oh, 
uh, I just feel this movie is fucking garbage. I can't stand uh, his accent. I feel that it is just sort of a way to look at, you know, America through rose-colored glasses. Um, I think it's very shitty about the sort of AIDS epidemic, about race relations. Look, the way they sprinkle in those horrible fucking jokes when he's running. It happens. What the shit? Yup. And then shit happens about it. And then wipes his face and it's the smiley face. It's so fucking stupid. It's so fucking... Look, man. This movie just fucking blows big time, all right? Like, hey, Haley O. Johnson, cute little kid. All right, cool. The rest of this, terrible. Terrible, terrible movie. I, I don't... Like, I can appreciate some parts of it. Like, I think Gary Sinise is actually acting his balls off in this movie. Not to say a lot, because it's also, like, a really shitty way to look at paralyzed people. At least in my opinion. I'm not paralyzed. But it, to me, it just feels sort of objectifying in a really crass and cruel way. Uh, I just... I don't... I've never understood it. I, I, I remember when it came out, and I was, I was so shocked that it won Best Picture. So I, I mean, I knew it was going to be nominated, but I'm like, it's not that good. Come on, it's not that good. And even Tom Hanks winning Best Actor, like I love Tom Hanks. He's a he's a fucking, you know, he's a national treasure. But good God, this reminds me of like a modern day, like Green Book would be its modern day equivalent, to where you they knew what they were doing with this movie. We're going to make this movie. It's going to get the Oscar because of what it is, and that's it. That's all the care that went into it. At least that's what it feels like for me. I mean, I don't know. In a world where Driving Miss Daisy is like five years before this and is much more of like a Green Book analog, like nearly beat for beat, I'd say that slightly deserves that more. Um, but at the same time, with this movie, like what I find fascinating is you mentioned like all the saccharin stuff, but really like as I've gone back to it, it's fascinating because it is like all these saccharine moments are there and that's what most people respond to but then it's also an incredibly cynical movie that has like certain satiric bits that like make sense for like Robert Zemeckis has a lot more sort of like cynical bite in him than people give him credit for with like if you watch especially like the his 80s output like used cars even the back to the future movies have a lot of that like biting satiric intent with what they're doing um and this movie I think has moments of that but then it's mixed up with the saccharine stuff And it just feels weird where, like, the way I would describe this movie is, like, imagine if, like, a Mad Magazine parody of Americana was illustrated by, like, Alex Ross, the comic book guy who did, like, Kingdom Come and stuff like that. It looks like gorgeous, beautiful, statuesque, like, amazing, wide-open, like, beautiful landscape and stuff like that of America. But it's written like it's a satire. So it's like, I don't know what it's going for. It feels like so bizarrely tonally confused in the modern context where I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're trying to say, man. Is, are you trying to say, like, man, wasn't American history, like, filled with so much turmoil but we got over it? Or, oh, America was filled with so much turmoil and the only person who could succeed is this idiot, but we also have so much investment in this idiot as, like, an actual sincere character. So it's like, I don't know what the fuck you're trying to do, man. What are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a very good way to look at it. What is the point? You got this character sort of gliding through all these major moments in, in history, in American history, especially, obviously. And to to what sort of resolve? Like, I don't understand the point. Okay, yeah, he's in Vietnam. Okay, he played on the Olympics ping pong team. Okay, he's met the president twice. Okay, so... What? That's the thing. It doesn't mean anything to the the character in general. Like he doesn't. It's not like at the end of the movie, he's learned some big life lesson from going through all these things. That doesn't happen. 
the, the the whole thing is, oh, he got to be with Jenny, and oh, he's got his son. That's it. What did Forrest learn through all of these things? He ran for, what was it, like a year and a half or whatever. So nothing nothing comes from anything in this movie. Right. And apparently, like, what I've heard is, like, the, the Winston Groom novel is apparently much more, like, bindingly satiric. Like, it's not as, like, Forrest Gump is not, like, the sweet and empathetic character who's supposed to feel invested in. He's a bit more, like, gruff. And it's a bit more about how, like, oh, of course, like, this idiot is the only person who, like, does everything that he's told and keeps going throughout this life. And he's the only person who can succeed in America because he's an idiot who doesn't question anything. And, like, that would be, in theory, like, the satiric tone I think it's kind of going for at points. But then the opposite thing is what you're talking about, which is, like, isn't this guy a nice guy who, like, lived through all the great moments in America, like, all this turmoil, but also all these, like, great happy moments that, like, you feel invested in because you're, you love Americana, right? So, like, you love Forrest Gump by proxy. It feels like it's this weird movie that's both an anti-America movie and a total propaganda piece. And it's just, like, so bizarre, where it's just, like, Forrest doesn't change, but at the same time, the movie isn't trying to say, like, isn't that fucked up as much as it is just, like, oh, man, it's, it's weird, like, Forrest just kind of, like, flies around like the feather, and that's great, and he lived happily ever after, and Jenny died because she was trying to be counterculture. How dare you question things, Jenny? Yeah, exactly. Like, how, t- how dare you, hippie? Right. <laughs> A thousand percent. No, I, I definitely feel more of the uh, propaganda angle. The Kennedy shit and then LBJ and all this. And oh, look, they're laughing with them. Oh, they all oh, LBJ's laughing with him because he got shot in the butt in the war we had no business being in, man. It feels like it's this weird thing where, like, a lot of, like, 90s culture has this, where it's just, like, this weird apathy about anybody giving a shit. Like, that's, that's what it weirdly is. Just, like, they have, like, the people who are, like, sort of, like, a very pro-American who, like, end up getting, like, screwed over, too, at the same time in this movie. But the movie's sort of central character, like Forrest Gump, is this guy who has, like, no feelings about anything, and the movie's almost pushing those, like, well, that's the way to be. Like, you can't get tied in, like, one side or the other. There's no point in this, man. You can just go down the middle and coast through life and everything's fine. You don't have to, like, really give a shit about anything except for, like, some somebody who you, like, are chasing after, basically. Just do what you're told, man. Everything will work out. Just listen to your parents, join the military, fight for your country. You're going to be fine. You're going to be totally fine. And you'll talk to these random people at different intervals on a bus stop, and they're all going to get super involved in your bullshit. Fuck you, movie. I got to say, where, like, you mentioned Hanks earlier, as, like, I I will say. In terms of, like, I, I don't like necessarily the accent, I agree. I think there's, it's a weird thing where, also, like, Forrest Gump, they don't ever technically say he has, like, any kind of specific mental disability. They just say he's slow, quote-unquote, basically. That's why it's insulting. That's why it's a blanket statement. Like, what is it? What do you mean he's just slow? Like, I get right. maybe back in the day, like, when he would have been diagnosed, okay, maybe that's how things were handled back then. But still, it's just, it's insulting. Right, but, like, at the same time, what I will appreciate is that, like, despite, like, all of these, like, ha- like all these sort of issues that would, like, I think, screw over some of the other people who were considered, like, uh, Sean Penn, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and your favorite, Adam John Travolta, was almost gump. You could imagine a worse world <laughs> where that happened. <laughs> I'm sure you would love this movie even more. But in a way, though, I almost wish it was John Travolta, because this movie would not have gotten nearly as much of attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, could you imagine Sean Penn? Holy Christ, what a dark movie. <laughs> it's so much darker. But, but but what I'm saying with, like, in terms of, like, 
you know, with the Hank's Hanks of it all. You can, yeah, Hanks at the same time is like so good an actor that he can't help but make certain moments work. Like a moment that gets circulated all the time when he first sees Haley Joel Osment. It's a genuinely great piece of acting. It's it's fucking amazing. No, it's amazing. I absolutely agree with you. It's amazing. And the way he can bust out the tears when he's at her grave. It's a great, another great acting scene. That's the thing. He's really he can he has these moments. Where, I mean, it's Tom Hanks. He's undeniable. But it's just it's saddled around it, it just with so much other dumb bullshit around it. You know, I had so many Dr. Peppers. You know, I gotta pee. I believe this. Uh, I uh, believe this uh, man has to go pee. Like, get the fuck out. This is so dumb. This is so dumb. Oh, wait, I'm but, sorry. Is, is John F. Kennedy in the room right now? And he <laughs> looks like a weird, like, not at all CG monstrosity version of himself. Right, yeah, his mouth is doing totally normal, natural things. He, he doesn't look like a jib jab. Right. <laughs> it does look like a jib jab. I, uh, I uh, wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> he's a dance with Forrest in the Oval <laughs> Office. Um, but, like, I think, like, that stuff, like, holds up, uh, like, a fine milk. But I will yeah. say, also, you mentioned, like, I think Sinise is great, but also the legs of Lieutenant Dan still is, like, pretty impressive for, like... It looks Christmas. really good. Like, it still yeah. really looks good. Uh, and his, his also his uh, physical acting, you know, like, when he's hoisting himself up in the chair and stuff, like, he's really going for it, man. And you feel the most earnest for him because he has, he's the one person to like question anything with Gump. Like, right after the dumb uh, Dick Cavett bit where they do like the uh, John Lennon imagine, just like uh, no possessions, like that dumbass joke. They, he leaves and then see Lieutenant Dan's like outside to meet him. And he's just like, they give you the goddamn Medal of Congressional Honor. Well, whoop de fucking do. I, don't I love America? He's like the one guy who like is able to question all this stuff and gets a happy ending, but only after, like we mentioned, going through all sorts of horrible shit this whole time. Like being just completely shit on and spat upon. And then Gump is just like, well, you should be like me, Lieutenant Dan. It's like, you know what? I guess like it's a, such a tragic story where by the end it's just like, I just gotta embrace the Gump of it all and then I'll have a wife and legs. It's so fucked up. Good for him. Oh, and he's got legs that are made out of the same stuff that, you know, they, they make the rockets out of. Oh, God. Like, it's so fucking dumb and forced. Like, it should be a moment. You should be like, oh, fuck yeah, Lieutenant Dan. But instead, you're like, oh, Forrest, you got new legs, Lieutenant Dan. Because he's banging somebody. Like, fuck off, Forrest. Way to ruin the moment. <laughs> it's, it's so well, look, dumb. if there's one person who knows how to ruin moments, it's Forrest Gump with, like, early on the scene with Jenny, which... I'm still baffled that, like, I watched this movie many times as a child, and there is a premature ejaculation joke in this movie that's very blatant, and I never got what that was until, like, like the last couple times. I'm like, what? When I first saw this as a kid, I had no idea. Obviously. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this came out, what, 94? So I was like 11, maybe 12. And I was like, what happened? And I didn't know. <laughs> and then, uh, I think my dad told me, what do you mean what happened? He came. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> like, and so, but yeah, then it's like, he did it like her roommate's robe. <laughs> and he's like, I think I'll ruin your room, but it's fine. I'll wash it. Like, oh, good Lord. And this poor woman's laying there hearing all this. Like, awful. But it, it, that, and then like, with his mom, Sally Field, who's also really fun in this. Sally Field's great. But uh, just where she bangs the principal and all this, and Young Forest hears it. And then like the thing with Elvis. Oh, God, I yeah, hate that this Kurt, movie. Kurt Russell dubbing the voice of Elvis, though. Yeah, that doesn't make it good. 
hate this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's it's so weird. We're like, I, I described this to you like we were private messaging like after I rewatched it. Like, coming out of, like, being so ingrained in, like, no, this is one of the great movies of all time. It's so great and, like, everybody loves it. Like, that kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And then going back to this and watching it, it feels like realizing that, like, I was in a cult. Because <laughs> it's just like, oh, we all kind of just went along with this. We drank the Kool-Aid. But yeah, like, sky is blue, grass is green, Forrest Gump is one of the great American films. And, like, rewatching it just feels like it's so astonishing that, like, this movie still has, like, a cultural legacy. Still has, like, the parodies. Like, we mentioned The Great Escape and how many things parody it. There was a lot of that with Forrest Gump, too. Like, there was so many, like, oh, like, life is like a box of chocolates. All these things, like, permeate throughout the culture. Run, Forrest, run. Right, right. Run, Forest, Run. A Bubble Gump Shrimp Company you can still yeah. eat at yep. certain locations. Like that great, awful piece of shit restaurant that makes terrible shrimp at like your local Universal City Walk. All that stuff like is like so ingrained in the culture, yet this is an example unlike The Great Escape, where like you go back to it, just like, oh yeah, why did we put this on a pedestal? Why exactly did we do that? And I think it's only because, like, I, I would say it is one of the definitive movies of the 90s, yes, but I one agree. of, like, the bad ones, I think, for, like, all of the reasons that, like, make the 90s that weird kind of, like, naive period in terms of just, like, oh, everything's fine, right? Like, the Cold War's over, uh, we won, baby boomers are great, and everything's going to be great for now. I'm Clinton's president. Nothing bad's going to happen after this, right? Nothing bad will happen to the degree that... The sequel was going to happen. That was going to be based on, like, the, the sequel book. But then, like, they literally, like, handed it off in, like, early September 2001. Then 9-11 happened. And, like, Zemeckis and Hanks and everybody was like, we shouldn't do this. And it does feel like it's one of the premium examples of, like, a pre-9-11 movie. Where it's just like, oh, no, everything's going to be scot-free yeah, sure. from now on. In the, the 21st century, all, like, blue skies, nothing bad's going to happen. Everything is great. Right. Yep, as long as you live the American way, everything's going to be fine. It works so far, right? So let's keep doing it. <laughs> let's keep going. Uh, this is definitely one of those where I'm like, thank God I never got the sequel. Uh, because even if they would have done it, I, it would still would have been a huge movie. I mean, it would have made a ton of money. Would it be an, as sort of loved and lauded over as the this one? Maybe not, but still, it would have been a huge, huge success. You know, it's one of those things where the American people don't need any more dumbing down. We're all pretty fucking stupid. And uh, this movie is just, to me, a pure sort of example of that. We're like, there's things in it I remember. It's good. Shit happens. Oh, that's a bumper sticker. He likes Nikes. Well, but even moving from that, it feels like it's also just like this weird thing where, despite like some of the satiric intent, it is also just kind of like a, wow, man, we got through so much shit. It feels like a weird victory lap movie. Yeah, like it does. Baby boomers. Yeah, it really does. Just, yeah, it does. We're just like, man, we went through Vietnam. We went through like uh, segregation, like being abolished and all this other stuff. Even this guy who's got mental problems and, you know, people have died around him. He's lost everyone in his life. As long as you just stick to the American way and do what you're told, you too can succeed and own a chain of shitty shrimp restaurants. Can be a millionaire. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You'll be fine. To the degree that, like, he does the whole speech thing in Washington, but, like, it's cut off by the mics or whatever, and he makes Abby Hoffman cry. Like, that's the ultimate, like, weird indictment where it's just, like, like, he can make Abby Hoffman cry, but also he can basically foil Nixon 
by blowing the Watergate scandal open and everything and all this other shit. Like, it just feels like it's, with the historical fiction element of it, it's this, like, parade through, like, American history that is trying to say, like, wow, isn't it weird that all this stuff happened? But also, but isn't it, like, great that we got through it, right? Like, a bunch of our fucking presidents got shot, and, like, John Lennon got shot, and all this other stuff, but we made it out of the woods, guys. We're all good. We can retire on our farms, and, oh, our hippie wives might die. But we can keep going, and our sons will keep going. And it's the you know the the weird like uh, patriarchal male tradition continues even as like all that other stuff melts away. It's uh it's this movie that like is so saccharine, but also incredibly evil if you even scratch a bit underneath the surface. It is kind of an evil movie. <laughs> a bit under the surface. A bit. It's like one of those shitty fucking scratch off lottery tickets you get at your local dive bar. That only reward you with like drinks at the bar. It, all it takes is like barely the edge of a penny to scratch it. Just a little bit. That's the thing about this movie. That's the thing that sort of I, I guess it bothers me about it the most is because it's so beloved and so but so beholden and everything. And if you ask anybody honestly, like why do you like Forrest Gump so much? I'm just curious. Tom Hanks won the Oscar. Well, yeah, I know that, but why else? What, what else about it? They were naming off a bunch of shrimp. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? That wave he does, that's a gif now. Like, shut the fuck up. And I don't mean to really sour on anybody's taste in movies. I really, really don't. I mean, it sounded like you were just doing that pretty hard. I am doing it. But the the reason I am is because this is, I would never do it with really with almost any other movie, but this one to me is so bad and offensive and just has just this unrightful place amongst like the greatest, like you said, movies of the nineties or even of all time. And I've never heard one logical reason why it's gotten that. I, I still to this day don't get it because like you said, if you take a second and point out and, and analyze this movie at all, it's fucking wrong. It is a bad, evil, wrong movie that just literally only wants to placate on people's emotions to, to be as successful as it was. And it, there's no, I don't see anything in this movie worth merit. I still don't. Yeah, you get a couple good acting scenes or whatever, but you can find that in most movies. It's just, this is just fucking bullshit. It's just fucking dreck bullshit. 10 out of 10. This is a great movie, yes. Um, and like you even like with with Hanks, like having like one for Philadelphia the previous year. Like if you go back to Philadelphia, it is definitely a movie of its time and has dated elements to it. But you feel its heart is a lot more sincere and has like a true point to it. And you feel like like you know it at least makes sense for just like I get why this was like so sensational at the time and why certain elements might not hold up especially well today. But like there's still a lot of like respectful like beauty and at least attempts at like being very empathetic. That's trying to go for versus this movie, like I said, doesn't even have like it's not empathetic, nor is it like necessarily extremely like angry and dismissive. It's just a total apathy of a movie, which is why it's still so baffling that it has like such a massive success and like has so much love put toward it because it's a movie that feels like so much colder when you look back at it. I think a lot of what blinded at least me to it is the Hanks of it all, where I think. Hanks does such a good job with, like, the incredibly bizarre weirdness that's, like, this movie is going for that, like, could fall apart at the seams with any other actor. And I think he, like, makes you go on that whole journey. And at the very least, like, he is consistent enough, even within the confines of, like, this 
baffling performance. It has like the awful accent and all these like implications about the character and everything. But at the same time, Hanks is too good an actor, you know, for somebody who doesn't want to scratch beyond that surface to even have that investment in doing so. He's kind of like the safeguard for the whole movie. Because like if you anybody who's like, well, maybe if I thought about it for the second, it's like, oh, but Hanks is being so charming. He's America's dad. I can't do it. And that's like the weird thing. I don't think it's like Hanks doesn't even like when I've seen like interviews with him about this movie afterward, he doesn't seem like it's like in on like the maliciousness of it necessarily. He just like is too good and sincere an actor to like really make any of that stuff shine as brightly as it really should on anyone else. I think that's just the testament to like that guy where sometimes the power of Hanks can be used um, for evil in this case. Yeah, I agree. I, I guess I agree with you. I mean, you know, the thing is, like, yeah, Tom Hanks won Best Actor and won Best Picture and all that, but there's been several times where that's happened to better movies and some lesser movies that don't have nearly sort of the pop culture place that this one does. And that's why I'm just, I just don't get it. I don't get what it is about this fucking movie that just people are just enamored with and, and just defend it till the day they die. They'll die on the Forrest Gump Hill, and I don't understand it. I, I never will. Because, I, like I said, I didn't like it when it first came out. Uh, but even to this day, I, I just don't get it. Like, there has been a lot more dissension where people are like, yeah, maybe it's not that fucking good. Or, oh, it's pretty problematic. But there are still those people who are like, the fuck you, Forrest Gump is oh, it's a fucking treasure. Okay. Well, I, I just it, not for me, I guess. That's the easiest way uh, in the most little unconfrontational way I could put it. It's just not for me. Yeah, I think I'd also want to give a bit of credit at least to Robert Zemeckis, who we've talked about plenty of times on the show, um, and I think is so, at least at this time, was very good at crafting, like, an incredible sort of, like, uh, you know, blockbuster entertainment from, like, the Back to the Future movies, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, even, like, Death Becomes or no matter how weird that movie is. He at least, like, knew how to, like, really try and, like, uh, bring unique special effects and also like a really engaging cast and sort of like some of that satiric bite into this where like, I don't think also if you don't have a Zemeckis, I don't think this would also as specifically at this time that would nearly work as well. But at the same time, this is also the movie that kind of broke Zemeckis to a certain degree, even though I like Contact and Castaway were like the movies right after this. I think those are both pretty great movies. But it feels like this is a movie where like it's so massively successful and allows him to do like whatever he wants afterward that it's like, uh, well, I mean, I made this movie that appeased so many people, but then I made like, you know, Contact and and Castaway and people kind of like those, but not nearly as much. Maybe I don't need to deal with people anymore. Maybe I can do creepy motion capture movies, right? And then you'll love me again? And no. Which... We watched, I think, yesterday, if not the day before, fuck Polar Express. Oh. Oh, good God. I've seen it before, but I hadn't seen it since it came out, so my kid wanted to watch it. That's a terrifying film. Did she even like it? She watched it, but she was just, she just wanted to watch anything Christmas. So, like, we did that, and then I got her to watch Arthur Christmas. Yeah. Way better movie. Great movie. <laughs> Way better animated Christmas movie. Uh, but yeah, no, Polar Express, she was like, it was okay. Yeah, that means it's, you didn't like it. That means it sucked, which it does. She didn't want any of that hot chocolate. It's so bad. And by the way, <laughs> as if Forrest Gump doesn't prove it, Polar Express definitely will. Tom Hanks, no good at accents. Though we should give credit to the fact that like in this movie, the accent is actually based on the kid who plays young Forrest. That's his natural right. speaking voice. Um, yeah, Michael Connor Humphreys. If I remember right, 
uh, he went in doing it with his normal voice. Tom yes, Hanks there is did. footage and, of that. Like, there is footage of him doing the scene where he discovers Haley Joel in, like, Tom Hanks' voice, and it just feels weird. Even as weird as obviously it is in this movie, it just feels bizarre, which is like, no, this doesn't work. Wait, no. The, if Hanks used his normal voice, it would, I think, have sank this movie. Even, like, even his charms couldn't move past, like, that yeah. element of it. Right. I think also that Alan Silvestri score... Who I love Alan Silvestri in a lot of contexts, but it's maybe the best definition of like a manipulative score for a oh, movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Where it's just like the gliding feather theme and all that stuff. Yeah, the yeah. piano key. Oh god, fuck off. Oh god, and the fucking the needle drops. I forget every time that this movie has like so a soundtrack budget that could like fund a small country. <laughs> Basically, because it's just, like, needle drop after... And it's also a movie that, like, helped ruin needle drops. Because, like, how many movies after this have done, like, especially the... I mean, this isn't the first movie to do this, but, like, the Credence over Vietnam and shit like that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, well, yeah, that's a guarantee at this point, isn't it? Anytime it's a... Or even just a military helicopter, even if it's not Vietnam, it's usually Credence. And I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired. And I love Credence. But I'm so tired of that fucking trope i don't know whenever you see a helicopter land in a military zone though you're just like well why isn't fortunate son playing right now yeah what it feels the like it has to happen <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i'm just i'm tired of it and this movie's really bad at it i mean it's not like suicide squad bad but it's bad but it's at the same it's a weird thing where like it originated i think it feels at least like or at least it really mass uh, sort of marketed a lot of that kind of stuff that like has been so saccharine now but unlike a lot of other movies where you go back to sort of the origin point and you're like oh well it's so well utilized here instead it's just like oh no people just learned all of the this movie's bad lessons and repeated them because it was so successful yep that's exactly right fuck you Zemeckis <laughs> fuck you buddy and fuck whatever his name is who wrote this goddamn book well, like I said, I mean, the book at least it seems is a bit more less like saccharine. Care. It's more Eric care. Roth, I think, you have to to blame for that. Who basically rewrote this movie, but put an old boy Brad Pitt in it with a Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah, like, that movie is so this movie like beat for beat. But at least that movie feels a bit more like dark. Yeah, because it's weird, unsettling. Yeah, because it's weird. <laughs> yeah, at least there's something weird about it. Where this is just like what? They should have had Eric Roberts rewrite it. Then it would have been good. It's a talking cat. <laughs> I love you, Lieutenant Dan. Yes, I'm a talking cat, Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> and my mouth is barely moving. <laughs> <laughs> let's get some hookers. <laughs> okay, And let's Kitty. stay at this one house location for the entire 75-minute running time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Are we done, David Takato? I want to get out of here into my trailer. It's just Aaron oh. Roberts in a shitty cat costume. <laughs> no, oh. that's way too much. Just, look, I can record lines in my bathroom at one in the morning, and you can use that. <laughs> Don't look at me, Forrest. I can't get hard if you're looking at me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, it looks like we've uh, <laughs> flown way past Forrest Gump here. Uh, so, Adam, do you have any other lingering final thoughts of Forrest Gump? <laughs> nah, it sucks, dude. It's, it's like I said. It's it's manipulative. It's bullshit. The movie I just literally described would have been a better movie, at least for me. It'd have been hilarious. Uh, you know, this. I know your name's Forrest Gump. That's but Forrest Hump. Uh, but anyway, it's just it's terrible. Like I said, it's emotionally manipulative. Nothing happens. Like yeah, there's a bunch of series of events that are connected, but 
at the end of it, what happens? He's got a kid. And Lieutenant Dan's got peg legs or whatever the fuck. Great. Cool. Jenny believed in anti-establishment and got AIDS and died because of it. Sweet. Oh, the movie's over because that fucking feather again? All right, cool. All right. Oh, that kid sees dead people. Oh, it's oh, it is really over. All right. Well, that was a waste of my time, and that's what na, this na, 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 na. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so fucking bad. I hate this movie. Uh, this to me is one of my least favorite best picture winners, if not my least favorite. To be a hundred percent honest, I don't. Crash is right up there. I mean, but, Crash uh, is like <laughs> pretty <laughs> Crash is pretty bad, and the artist. Uh, but this is really I, I, fucking look, bad. Look, the artist, I don't think, deserves nearly as much hate as either of those movies. It's a no, fine no, no, little no. movie that just yeah, got yeah, too yeah. much attention. Yeah, all right, that's true. The artist is not as bad as Crash. Uh, but no, this movie just fucking sucks, dude. It, it fucking sucks. Uh, it's, it. yeah, I, I got nothing for it. I probably, unless I'm forced to for whatever reason i don't think i will ever ever watch war scum again it's weird where i don't have like the necessarily that nostalgia anymore for it um based on like what we've been talking about here but at the same time there is a weird fascination that makes me not necessarily hate forrest gump but be like so intrigued by what it is as a cultural object that i can't like hate it necessarily but at the same time i can easily say uh, it does not deserve nearly as much of the success or the acclaim or the cultural relevance that it has. Like, it's more fascinating as, like, a weird curio of what, like, a 90s movie is, particularly, where it's just, like, this weird, like I said, like, victory lap movie that, like, could have only happened and been embraced in, like, 1994. Like, for all the reasons that we're talking about, it's, like, such a movie of that specific time that I find it fascinating on that level. Um, and I think certain things, like we mentioned Sinise, I think even Robin Wright, we didn't mention a lot of, but despite how much her character gets like just so kicked around brutally, uh, unfairly, um, I think is doing as much as she can with it. And even Hanks, I think, is like a, such a good actor that like he can at least work around some of this like awful, evil implications of this movie to make a kind of interesting performance, if not necessarily a good one. But overall, yeah, this is still, um, it's an evil movie. <laughs> I don't think, at least, if it does have to have any kind of legacy, it should be just more of, like, this is what, like, the 90s was in terms of, like, the naivete of it. This is what, like, the naive sense of just, like, everything's fine, nothing bad's gonna happen, 21st century's gonna rule, we're gonna have flying cars and bullshit. It's the ultimate example of, like, that kind of movie where it has bits of that cynicism, but it's so much more about the, like, well, all that horrible cynical shit happened, but we made it, everything's good, and everything's great, as long as you do what you're told and don't question anything. So, evil, but fascinating nonetheless. Evil dies tonight. Look how well that worked out for that movie. Good point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, now it's time uh, we did our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double, 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 redo. That works. So the double redo is a segment that Adam and I like to do uh, where we bring up a good and a bad movie uh, related to the topic in question. Uh, so we bring up as like sort of alternate double feature where it's like, hey, here's a good example of this topic we'd recommend. And here's a bad example that we would steer you clear of. So Adam and I each have a good and a bad one like this. And I'll start here um, with uh, my good pick 
is a movie that came out only a couple years ago and feels like it kind of disappeared, which is a shame because I think it's a it's a very fun and also much more inherently cynical and satirical movie uh, called The Death of Stalin, which um, is basically um, a historical fiction version of a scenario where like basically uh, Joseph Stalin dies in Russia um, in 1953. Um, and the people who were following are trying to like basically keep the nation of Russia together uh, while at the same time constantly infighting. And it's an amazing cast where you got like of people who are not doing Russian accents, but are just like really genuinely great, funny actors. Where you got Steve Buscemi, Patty Constantine, Jason Isaacs, uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python shows up. Andrea Riceburg is also in there. Like a lot of great people. Jeffrey Tambor is also there. So you know, a bit squick over there with that necessarily. Um, but at the same time, it's such an interesting movie that it's directed by um, uh, Armando Iannucci, who's more famous for, like, doing uh, Veep and The Thick of It, which became, like, In the Loop, uh, the movie and stuff like that. So he's known for, like, doing bitter kind of satire. And he does such a great job with this movie where it's all about the weird, dumb infighting that happens where it's like, oh, our great leader died. Uh, what the fuck do we do now? Like, there's literally, like, the first, I would say, 15 to 20 minutes of this movie are these guys who were like in Stalin's cabinet discovering he's dead and being like, ah, oh, fuck. Ah, oh, God, what do we do? Um, do we move the body? No, we couldn't move the body. Like everyone can see it. Like what the fuck? Ah, oh, God. Uh, uh, like they treat it like it's this like major war castle, even though it's just like a guy died. Who's also like the lead, like the, the leader of this country died and they make it just like this. Oh God, we got to make this look good for us. Ah, oh, shit. Fuck. Um, <laughs> and it's really funny. So, like, very satirical. Um, but it feels like it's a movie that really did not get much of a huge release in America. And I wish it kind of did because it has, like, so many things where, like, some of it's based on truth, but so much more of it is just, like, a satirical idea of just, like, what happens when, like, in a dictatorship, if this one guy dies, all, like, the various, like, vermin are around just like, oh, fuck, what do we do? Like, who's going to take power? Who's going to take control? Do we even say that he's dead or not? <laughs> and all this other stuff. How do we keep the propaganda machine going? It's, like, so smart, so fucking funny. And I hope, like, more people would at least get a chance to see it now and as, after rec me recommending it here. Um, and then my bad one is a movie called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which came out in 2012. And I remember being sort of a weird big deal where it was, like, a big summer blockbuster and it was based on um, a book that had gotten a lot of attention. And the premise sounds cool where it's like, oh, what if during his time when he wasn't obviously being the president... Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, the 16th president of the United States, was secretly hunting vampires on the side. Like, that sounds like a fun movie, right? The problem is this movie is so dead serious, and it doesn't have any of, like, the potential, like, fun and humor and interest, because it's uh, Timur Bekmendikov did it, and it feels, like, so overly serious and kind of dull after a certain point. And there's a lot of problems, like Benjamin Walker is the guy who plays Lincoln, and he's kind of dull and boring. Uh, there's other, there's good people in, like, Anthony Mackie, Dominic Cooper, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who, like, in theory could, like, have, be, like, fun in a movie like this. But this one is, like, so deadly serious and has, like, this big inflated budget with, like, big CGI, like, you know, action sequences that all look, they all look terrible at the time in 2012 and still look even worse today. And, like, it also is, like, shot so dark. There are, like, so many scenes where, like, it is shot at night and you can barely see what the fuck's going on. And it's such a bummer that, like, this cool idea of just, like, Abraham Lincoln, like, fucking fighting vampires at night. A real waste of potential. Okay, uh, I've never seen Death of Stalin. I've heard of it, uh, but I honestly completely forgot about it. Uh, but it's definitely one that I, I want to watch. And uh, 
I, I think my wife would enjoy it too, especially with that cast. And uh, I mean, it's out there. It's easy to find. It's on a free app right now. Uh, so, I mean, it's definitely one that I, I want to check out. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, briefly to Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, a fucking terrible film. And like you said, I think what the, what the problem with it is, is exactly that, that it takes itself way too seriously. It's not nearly as fun. And think about Tim, Timmer, uh, he's made, you know, the Night Watch and the Day Watch movies, which have fun with themselves. They're not great movies, but they're a little bit of silly. They're silly. They're just cool action bits. Crazy that the special effects in those movies are better than the ones in Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but those are actually kind of fun, you know, and then even wanted, which, you know, we've talked about here. I, yeah, but there's at least points of levity to it where Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. It's just, there's nothing. There's nothing. Like you said, it's got a great cast. Not only the people you mentioned, but it's also Jimmy Simpson and then Martin uh, Soskis, I want to say is his name, as sort of the main one of the main bad vampires. He was, could be really fun in it and everything, and he actually was okay, kind of creepy and charming. But they give him nothing else to do. It's just, it's a really bad fucking movie. It's really bad. And then for mine, uh, I'll do my bad first. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I know I have. Uh, I think it fits the historical fiction thing uh, pretty well. It's a terrible fucking film. Uh, it's one a big, big case of whitewashing in Hollywood, which is weird because it was a joint China production. I have the Matt Damon starring Great Wall. Uh, visually, a lot of pretty colors and costumes and things like that. But Arnett, it is just a basic, stupid white man savior, run of the mill fucking action movie that's setting feudal China that also has crazy aliens for some reason. It's just, there's a lot of people that really existed at the time in the movie, at least the characters and and things like that. But it's just, holy fuck, is it bad? It is really bad. Talk about one of those that's all style, no substance. And even the style's bad. It's like fucking shitty Jenko jeans. You get at Pacific sunwear. Like it, it's not good style. Uh, it's just, it's a lousy movie and it feel it's a chore to get through. Uh, and then for my good, I have a movie that might be a little controversial uh, just because of this director. And I know a lot of people don't really like this movie. I still think it's a very fun, entertaining movie. Uh, not great, not not like one of the best movies I've ever seen, but anytime I put it on, I have a good time with it. I have Zack Snyder's 300. Uh, it is the ultimate sort of male machismo action movie. Uh, and plus, you know, if you are a little bisexual, it's fun that way too. Uh, but it, I just think it's a super fun movie. I, I think the action's really fun. I think Gerard Butler... God bless him. I love when Gerard Butler tries to cover up his accent. And this is one of the ones where it's like he's doing an accent, but it's not his normal accent. So it's an accent that belongs nowhere. Uh, I, I just, I really have fun with this one. I, I even had fun with the sequel, which is not good. But uh, compared to, you know, the other Frank Miller graphic novel movies that came out where you had Sin City, which is great, and sequel, which is dog shit, uh, I would take these two over it. I, I think 300 is still a very, very fun movie. Uh, yeah, I have seen both of these. Uh, the Great Wall is, I think, fascinating just because you mentioned kind of briefly that it's a weird example of like uh, Chinese and U- U.S. like um, 
joint production um, that has like a lot of like Chinese cast members, but also uh, Matt Damon and Willem Dafoe pop up. And Damon is like in such a sleep mode in that movie; he barely is cognizant. Um, and it's also it's directed by um, and I apologize for mispronouncing this potentially, but Zhang Yimou, who uh, directed a bunch of great Chinese movies, uh, including like Hero and House of Flying Daggers. A dude who knows how to make like a lot of those great big epic, especially like martial arts sort of focused movies, and uh, yeah, his talents are mostly wasted on this movie. With like you, you mentioned the weird like they're like these weird lizard monsters of some sort that attack. It's it's very bizarre um, that like the, the weird mythology they're trying to build with that uh, for a little result in that. And then three hundred is interesting to me where. Um, I was out of the country for most of 300's, like, big theatrical release in the U.S., and I remember coming back home and everybody was doing, like, 300, like, this is Sparta, kicks, and all that other stuff, and I didn't watch it until, like, it was on DVD, and when I watched it on DVD, I'm just like, I don't know if I really get all the hype behind this, and even, I watched it a couple years ago, kind of removed from that kind of hype element of it, and I find it interesting, just in terms of, like, it's this very stylistic, like, obviously, like, Zack Snydery embracing element of it but um it's also an incredibly fascist work of art and i don't say that necessarily to say that like oh zack snyder's like a fascist or whatever shit but just based on like what the actual context of it is the movie itself is also propaganda like even in context of the movie it's being told to like a group of kids as a way of like telling them like let's go ride just like you know the 300 did back in this olden time uh with like the one guy who's like narrating the whole story like it's inherently like a weird like fascist propaganda movie uh but at the same time it is stylish and has a lot of interesting elements to it so i don't necessarily like it that much but it's a curiosity for sure uh, but now let's do our uh, let's repeat our titles here for anybody out there in case you might have missed them uh, for our historical fiction double redo. Uh, my good pick was the death of Stalin, and my bad pick was a Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. My good pick was three hundred, and my bad pick was the Great Wall. Yes, yeah, so and we'll be winding down the show here, but stay tuned as we uh, we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. But we wanted to uh, thank some people first. Like we want to thank. Uh, Chris Oliver uh, for our intro and outro music on the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water on various socials. That's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for uh, all sorts of uh, interesting stuff on there, all his great artworks. And of course, thanks to our supporters on Patreon over at uh, patreon.com slash dedbpod. Where for just $1 a month, y'all get to do stuff like vote in polls for topics that we do, uh, like this one with historical fiction. Thanks to all you all. We ended up covering that, and this episode was made possible by you folks. Uh, but also, you get to listen to bonus podcasts. Like, right now, we just released a bunch of, like, big bonus stuff on our Patreon with, like, our top 10 directors. Uh, Adam and I went back and forth on that. Had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and then uh, we also had an On the Edge of Relevance that we put up for Avatar The Way of Water, in which myself and Hael Peralta, a previous uh, guest friend of the show, uh, talked about that movie for about an hour, 40 minutes, full spoilers, deep dive into Avatar The Way of Water. And uh, also stay tuned, because uh, we might be doing On the Edge of Relevance again, me and Adam, for a certain movie that came out on Netflix uh, this holiday season, uh, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Yeah. Yes, and uh, for one dollar you get all that stuff, and we really appreciate all the support we get from patrons out there. And hope uh, you know all those of you who aren't patrons can support us and you know get some of that stuff while at the same time helping us out. For more of us, you can find us on Instagram, 
Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing on uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com, which, just a shout-out, I was a guest on a couple podcasts recently, one over on the FilmCred Patreon, uh, the show I produce and edit, FilmCred Review, which is hosted by Hael. Um, we, uh, I was a guest on there for this most recent episode, the last episode of 2022, uh, where we both talked about the original Avatar, so it's a good companion piece with our On the Edge of Relevance episode. Uh, you can become a patron over there for Film Cred for also just $1, and you get to listen to that and all the other episodes for Film Cred Review over there. And also, I was a guest on Real Talk, the movie show, uh, with, uh, the host Nick Chandler, where, uh, we talked about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. A lot of fun. And I haven't been guest spotting anywhere because I'm being antisocial and fuck all of you. Uh, but you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. Or you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N. And for more of our audio antics here, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you might listen to all the other great shows that are on the network. And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes before we even joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't, uh, you know, help us with the Patreon. That $1 a month can be tight for some people. We get it. Totally cool. But it would help if you could do any of these things for free. Just rate review or simply share the show around to give us more visibility out there in the weary podcasting world help, help us walk like Forrest Gump throughout the world oh god I mean why did you have to do that now I don't have anything to say don't you know what don't don't help us because I don't want to keep propagating Forrest Gump so delete the apps delete all your apps <laughs> Stop listening to podcasts in general, not just ours, yep. but all podcasts. Get a just horse. destroy your podcast. So you don't bother anybody. <laughs> destroy your phone. Live off the yep. grid. Yep. <laughs> Go to a log cabin. Uh, well, Adam, on that note, uh, it's time we did our picking for next week, which we should mention. This is the last episode of 2022. So uh, we all hope you have a happy and safe New Year's out there. Uh, uh, happy New Year. Yes, for sure. But, Adam. Even though next week will be 2023, before we yeah. can continue with that year, we got to wrap up 2022, as we are yeah, one to baby. do, where every six months, basically, we do like a mid-year check-in for all the movies that came out in 2022, and then near the end of the year, or in this case, the very beginning of the next year, we are doing a wrap-up on 2022, where we're going to talk about two movies that came out in the year, uh, and uh, we already know one of those picks, thanks to our patrons, uh, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, for our picking, if you're new, uh, usually Adam and I each uh, come to the table with either two good or two bad movies. We switch up on the quality for that. And we assign them a numbers between 1 and 10. So uh, usually the other person would say, I'm going to pick number 7. And the person who has the either good or bad picks at that time on the other side of things will say, well, that's closest to number 8, which is this particular movie. And thus that gets us our good and our bad pick. Uh, but keep in mind, there is the Godfather rule, uh, where Adam and I were given vetoes back in May to use uh, just one single veto uh, for each of us uh, that, you know, if we hear a choice and we're like, you know what, I don't want to cover this movie, we can say the magic words of, I'll take the cannoli, and thus that choice is gone, we gotta go with whatever other choice is there, I've used my veto already, Adam has his, and he could use it for my good choice uh, for this, but um, keep in mind that 
I won't be doing any picking this week because our patrons vote on a poll for our bad pick uh, for this 2022 episode, and we ended up with Moonfall as our bad pick. Roland Emmerich's big old disaster movie, Moonfall, where the moon falls toward the earth. I have seen this movie, and it is interesting. We'll talk about it. But are you excited, Adam, to talk about Moonfall? I mean, I guess. I haven't watched it yet. I'm expecting about as much fun as I had with fucking Geostorm. So, uh, all right. <laughs> oh, but this is Emmerich actually behind the wheel as opposed to his producing buddy. So yeah, this is pure true. Emmerich cheese, which take of that what you will. Um, but now, Adam, yeah, uh, I have my two good choices here. And I'll say, even before you do any picking, these uh-huh. two were definitely ones I considered because uh, the big there's connecting threads to the two of them. Being one, they both star the same actor, who I think has had a very interesting year this year. Uh, okay. And two... Um, they're also both movies I think uh, relate to Adam on various different levels. So it's like a little Christmas gift for me. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> a New Year's gift, I guess, whatever. Celebrate, ring in the new year with one of these two movies. So uh, for my two good choices, Adam, please pick a number between 1 and 10. Oh, I'll go number 2. Okay. At number three, I have a movie that came out back in, like, I want to say March or April, and I think uh, deserves a lot more attention. It kind of, like, disappeared in the ether, but it stars one of the guys who's had such a great year this year, Colin Farrell, in After Yang. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been wanting to watch this. Right. Uh, So, yeah, definitely gives me a reason. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, I think by... Elimination. I know what your second pick is, but I am not taking the cannoli. Right, yes. Uh, and this one, obviously, because I know you're such a big sci-fi fan, this has a lot of Blade Runner sort of DNA in it uh, that we'll definitely <laughs> be talking about. Uh, but then on the other side of things, um, over at uh, number eight, I had uh, the uh, one that's probably going to get a lot more Oscar attention, and I get it, because, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of the year, that stars Farrell and his In Bruges co-star, Brendan Gleeson, in uh, the Martin McDonough-directed, also from In Bruges, uh, Banshees of Inishirin. Yeah, buddy, I'm watching. I'm actually watching that on Christmas Day. Uh, it's on HBO Max now. I can't fucking wait to watch it. I, it looks so good. It looks so fucking good. A, I love In Bruges. B, I love both of those actors. And C, uh, I don't know if anybody got the uh, from maybe listening to the show if you have. I'm Irish as fuck. So it's like, yeah, it's It's a movie about sad Irishmen who drink a lot. So I'm just like, oh, Oh, of course. (laughs) It is the life of your ancestors. It takes place in like the 20s. So it's just like, oh, this is Adam's like grandfather is one of these people. I'm sure it's my my pop pop. (laughs) Whichever. Yes. So after Yang and Moonfall, two sci-fi films uh, from 2022 of very different stripes. I'm good with sure. the year on sci-fi. Well, beginning the year on sci-fi. So yeah. We're ending 2022 and ringing yeah. 2023 next week. But until then, everybody, life is like a box of chocolates in terms of sometimes you get really good ones and then you get like really bad ones. Yeah, it's the ones that are filled with like the, the cherry or like the shitty jelly. Like nobody wants that or coconut. Oh, God. 